Hi everyone, I'm your host Senji and welcome to the 68th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, Audiobook Elvis and Send the World, and on this episode I was joined by Nicholas Humphrey, author of the book Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. It was great discussing the book with Nick and I hope you enjoy the episode. First thing I want to talk to you, Nick, is so what initially sparked your interest in exploring the evolutionary history of consciousness? I suppose it was the fact that I am conscious myself. Um, it's the most central thing about my life. And of course, I can't help wonder why it's there, how it came about, how it evolved, and who else in the world shares this wonderful experience of being conscious. And you've done research both in neuroscience and in animal behavior. So what have you seen that's changed your perspective? Well, yeah, yes, I, I did start off in, in neuroscience and working on, on the underlying brain mechanisms of vision in, in monkeys. Um, and the striking thing there was that I discovered a quite unexpected phenomenon called blind sight. Um, I was working with a monkey who'd had an operation done on her brain in Cambridge laboratory, done by my supervisor, which took away the visual cortex of her brain. That's the primary receiving area for vision in the back of the brain. And Helen, this monkey was called Helen, she was apparently quite blind, but uh, as people had expected she would be, who'd have no visual cortex, how can you see? I didn't quite believe the story, and so I decided to start investigating for myself. And within a few days, honestly, I had shown that she wasn't as blind as people had assumed she must be. But there was something very strange about her vision. I was convinced that though she could see, she could reach out and take peanuts from my hand, she could run around a room full of obstacles, never blumping into anything. It was obvious to many others from the outside that she had normal vision. But I wasn't sure about that. I thought there's something very odd about this. Helen seems not to believe that she can see. She seems strangely unsure of herself. If she loses confidence, she'll bumble around as if in the dark again. So that set me thinking about what how vision could exist without being the subject being aware of the fact that he or she or a monkey actually has vision. Um, this were early days, we found nothing like that in human beings at that point. But soon after that, my supervisor, Larry Weiskunz, did indeed find an exactly parallel phenomenon in human beings, which he called blind sight. Blind sight is a condition in a human where after damage to the visual cortex, the subject believes they're blind, says, doctor, don't, you know, of course, you know, I can't see how many times have I to tell you that? And yet, if the doctor questions him or her in the right way, yes, I know you can't see, I know you think you can't see, but supposing you could, why don't you try just guessing? Um, here, I'm going to hold up a light in front of you. Guess where it is. Guess if you can point to it. And the remarkable thing was that in one or two or three, now dozens of patients, it turned out that they could guess correctly what was going out in the world, what they, which they denied that they could see. So for good reason, this was called blind sight. <clears throat> but what's blind sight 
consists of. It's unconscious vision. It's vision that the subject doesn't acknowledge, isn't aware of. Um, so I think this was in fact exactly the condition which my monkey Helen had. After seven years of my working with her, she could run around a room full of obstacles and you, you'd thought there was nothing. She could catch a fly as it passed by. But all the while, we now have reason to believe she herself was having no visual sensations. Now, it's pretty bizarre that it's hard to imagine, but it raises the question, if, if an animal or human being for that matter can see without having visual sensations, then why do we have visual sensations? What's the point of them? Why don't we all have blind sight? And in fact, do many animals have blind sight? That's exactly the position, position I've come to now. I think most animals indeed do have blind sight. A frog or a lizard or a fish is equivalent to a monkey without any visual cortex. It's seeing without any sensations, without knowing that it can see. So that was the big discovery in, in neuroscience. What changed me further was when I uh, had the chance to go and work with Diane Fossey in, 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 in Africa, in Rwanda, uh, in the Virunga Mountains, where she was studying gorillas. And she invited me, she was, came from the same lab as I did. Her supervisor worked with me. So she said, look, come and, come and see this for yourself. It, it, it'll be amazing. And so I, I took the chance and went out for a few months to work with Diane in, in, in Africa. Um, it was amazing, um, but in all sorts of rather unexpected ways. Yes, I got out to study these gorillas. Gorillas are astonishing animals, incredibly grand, sophisticated, impressive animals. Um, they have huge heads and they have huge brains. So if they have such big brains, presumably they're terribly intelligent. And in fact, we know from studies in the lab, gorillas are very intelligent. They're up there with chimpanzees, way above dogs next to humans in a way. But as I looked at these gorillas in the wild, something really puzzled me. They didn't seem to be doing anything that required intelligence. Um, life for them was so easy, so simple. They were the masters of the, of the forest. They had no enemies to speak of except human poachers, perhaps. Um, there was plenty of food around and so on. So I sat there watching gorillas and they sat there watching me. And I was wondering, whatever are you doing with that big brain? And then it dawned on me, I'm sure it didn't dawn on them, that just like me, the problems they had were not practical ones about finding food or find, navigating the environment. They were social ones. Just like me worrying about my relationships back home in England. What was I thinking about? You know, if she does that, what will I do? But then, and so on. Maybe that's exactly what the gorillas were thinking about sitting in the day nest in the Rwanda, in, in the Virungan forest. Um, so I came up with the hypothesis that actually, the chief reason we have such, we humans, and for that matter, gorillas or chimps have such big brains, is to solve the problems of being a psychologist, of social living. It's to understand what it's like to be another member of your own species. Now, that is something which the gorillas certainly have to do. Um, they have endless social problems to negotiate in the world they live in. If they don't win out in the stakes of social life, they're not, they're not going to go anywhere. They have to resolve quarrels, get the better of arguments, uh, hold their own against rivals and so on. And that means they have to be, what I came to call later, natural psychologists. 
just as we are, just as you and everyone else we know. We spend when we spend a huge amount of time trying to work out what other people think, what they're going to do, and we're astonishingly good at it. I mean, to understand a human being is about the most difficult thing in the world. The human brain is the most complex bit of machinery existing in the universe, very likely. Um, the behavior it generates isn't easy to follow, as we all know, but amazingly, we can do it. At least we can do it well enough to conduct our lives in, in effective ways and maintain friendships, uh, win battles and so on. For that, we need to be able to see what it's like to be another person, to project ourselves into, into their mind. And then I put two and two together. I've been asking what sensations are for, why we have phenomenal consciousness, why it's like something for me to taste honey or see red or, or hear music or whatever it is. The reason I believe and I'm convinced of it now, is it's because I want to, I, it gives me a way into understanding what it's like for someone else to do that. When we both look at the same, the same scene, I know what it's like to be you because I know what it's like to be me looking at that scene or tasting that smell or smelling that smell or feeling that pain. So the hypothesis I came to is that the brain has evolved to generate this internal uh, a sense of self, of presence, of what it's like to be oneself, in order precisely to be able to model what it's like to be another person like oneself. In other words, we've developed primary consciousness basically in order to become social psychologists. you discussed the concept of phenomenal consciousness which you just mentioned as well could you elaborate on what this term means and how it relates to our understanding of consciousness yes it's the language is difficult and people use it in all sorts of different ways i think it's essential that we distinguish between cognitive consciousness which just means being aware of what's going on in our minds and the kind of it just means that we can tell, you know, I know what I remember, I know what I'm seeing, I know what I'm thinking and deciding. Um, that's a kind of consciousness which is probably pretty widespread in the in the natural world. Most animals have got something like that. It's a very clever trick for for for, for handling information, and it's been uh, it's been invented several times over in the course of evolution. Already, we're giving something like cognitive consciousness to machines to AI. Um, because it's a good way of helping uh, an organism to work out, to, to, to deal with information and to make rational decisions. That's all independent of something else, which of course dominates our own sense of what it's like to be conscious, which is this sense that of living in the presence of sensations, of feeling colors and smells and tastes and pains and so on. The thing which defines what it's like to be us at this moment. As I said when I talked about Helen, you could see without having a sensation of sight. You can even, in blind sight cases in humans, can distinguish colours. They can tell you whether this is red or green, and yet they're not having any sensation of red or green. That's what makes our life so different, and it's what actually is uh, creates the greatest problem for scientists in understanding consciousness. Phenomenal consciousness, in some senses, seems unnecessary. 
it's certainly very mysterious. How can a brain possibly, a brain made of you know just material matter, generate this otherworldly uh, experience of, as it were, living in this third, fourth, fifth dimension, which we call which we call us, which we call phenomenal consciousness. People have, the philosophers have called this the hard problem, and it is a hard problem, no doubt. When they use the term hard problem, they often mean, okay, it's a problem we're never going to solve. It'll be beyond science to explain how these kind of feelings come into existence. But for me as a scientist, of course, a hard problem presents a scientific challenge. Of course, we're going to have to solve it. Of course, it must be possible to solve it. I mean, the brain is only only a machine after all. Um, we understand most of the principles on which, which it works, and we must be able to then work out how, in fact, it's generating this inner experience. And that's what my work over the last 50 years has, has been about, trying to tell a story, uh, not so much experimental, but come to a good explanation of how phenomenal consciousness, sensory consciousness, consciousness could possibly have evolved, starting from nothing. Let's, let's assume that our ancestors, we have to assume, at some point far, far back, had no consciousness of any kind. Then they developed cognitive consciousness, the ability to think about things, but without there being any sense, any sensory component to this at all. And then at some point, this new ingredient emerged, which makes our life so worthwhile. Lots of people have assumed it must go a very, very long way back, that indeed phenomenal consciousness could have been present at the beginning of life. I think that's just wrong. Uh, it's 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 actually a very sophisticated ability. I think it requires a special kind of brain, and it certainly requires a special kind of lifestyle uh, before it will evolve. If you don't need phenomenal consciousness, you're not going to need you're not going to have it. It won't have evolved. But we, because of our social life, do need it. And of course, most other mammals, dogs, cats, monkeys, and so on, all need that kind of consciousness because they all live highly sophisticated social lives. But go back to the level of a frog, for example, or a fish. Um, they don't have social relationships. They're not worried about what's going on in the minds of other creatures like themselves. And therefore, it wouldn't help them to have a kind of inner story about what it's like to be me in order to understand what it's like to be you, because a frog doesn't worry about what it's like to be you. And I believe that's true of most of animal creation, including... I'll surprise you, perhaps offend you by saying, including very clever animals like octopuses. Um, octopuses are not social beings. They're very ingenious. They can solve all sorts of problems, in the, the practical problems in the world. But at no point do octopuses have to try and work out what it's like to be another octopus. Um, and for that reason, I don't think octopuses know what it's like to be themselves. What's the point of knowing what it's like to be yourself if you're the only one around, if you never have to think about the life of other individuals like yourself? So I'm taking a rather radical view about this, and it certainly gets me into trouble because um, you know, even the British government has now ruled by law that octopuses are sentient, which means octopuses have phenomenal consciousness. But I think it's bad philosophy and it's bad science. Um, and it's uh, you know, of course, we should respect octopuses. I'm not saying we should go around uh, damaging them or restricting them, uh, you know, or, or, or doing away with their means of life or whatever. Octopuses are valuable as all life is valuable. They're beautiful, intelligent creatures. 
Um, but I don't think we need to rest this argument on being kind to octopuses on the possibility that they have inner feelings like our own. I don't think they do. There was an interesting question that you raised in the book as well, which I want to raise to you now, actually. And it's, are we smart enough to know how smart other animals are, though, Nick? Well, I think it's a wrong question of, yes, animals are very smart. And I think we're quite smart enough to know how smart they are. But that's not, has very little bearing on whether they have phenomenal consciousness. Franz Deval uh, he he just doesn't get it that we that that you could be as smart as can be, and already many machines are amazingly smart, but they're not conscious in the way we are. And it doesn't it doesn't it, it, the, the jump from cleverness to to consciousness is is is, is one you can't you can't uh, reasonably make. There has to be some other reason for consciousness to have come into existence. So I think that. Uh, France and others who go around, of course, pointing to examples of, of you know, of unexpected and, and ingenious behaviour by intelligent animals could equally well be pointing at un- unexpected ingenious behaviour by intelligent machines. Um, it wouldn't mean they are conscious like we are or that they deserve the respect, the moral respect, that comes with having the kind of consciousness that we do. Because in the end, it is indeed a moral issue. Um, sentience for those animals which has it means they matter to themselves and for that reason they should matter to us the reason for that is that it's our duty to always try and behave to other animals and other machines if they come along in the way they would want us to behave it's called the golden rule of ethics do unto others as you would be done by now Okay, when it comes to a chimpanzee, I know what a chimpanzee would want done to it or wouldn't want want done to it. It wants to avoid being feeling pain, or it wants to have the pleasures which I know from eating and sex and so on. But when it comes to an octopus, I don't think it has those needs or desires. And therefore, if I was an octopus, I wouldn't expect me to respect those needs or desires because they don't they're not part of the equation. What would be the criteria for, let's say, a machine to possess a phenomenal consciousness? And do you think that would be possible with the rise in artificial intelligence over the last couple of years? Yeah, so it's of course the right question. Um, how would we diagnose it? And it's the question which we ask about animals. However, can we tell whether consciousness is present in a cat or in a chimpanzee or in, a, you know, or in an earthworm for that matter? And in my new book, I try and set out some diagnostic criteria. I look for evidence that these animals have what I call a phenomenal self, that they uh, have a sense of presence, of their own presence um, in the world, and that they enjoy it, that they exploit it, that they want more of it, um, that they engage in sensation-seeking just for the sake of sensations, that they care about consciousness or the minds of other animals, that they respect other animals in the way because they understand that I am, I I feel, therefore I am, you are, because you feel too. 
There is evidence that animals do that, but only some do, um, and not certainly uh, animals uh, other invertebrates. In fact, I draw the line at well at warm-blooded animals. That's just just birds and mammals. Now, when it comes to the machines, I think we could apply exactly the same criteria. If a machine started worrying, becoming interested in sensation-seeking, if it started enjoying its own presence, if it started um, engaging with others on the basis that I know what it's like to be you because I know what it's like to be me, then there'd be every reason to think that that machine had become phenomenally conscious, had become sentient. But at the moment, there's no evidence of it. And of course there won't be because no one has designed a machine to have those kinds of inner experiences. Machines will only, they won't just emerge out of just because it's complex or because you know time has passed or whatever. To be sentient, to have phenomenal consciousness, something has to have arranged for it to be there. In our case, it's natural selection. In the course of evolution, natural selection selected our ancestors because they had this extra ability. It may be we will design machines to have this extra ability, but we have to ask, why would we do that? Well, there are reasons why we, why we might want to. Of course, machines at the moment aren't social beings, but they are increasingly interacting at a pseudo-social level with humans. And to get good at that, it may become important to the machines to become understandable in the terms in which we understand other people and for the machine to understand us in those terms too. Now, to do that, one of the, it might be the most effective way, it might indeed be to take a leaf out of nature's book and give them the kind of consciousness which exists in our own heads and in the heads of other mammals. Um, once we know how to do that, once we've understood it in much more detail than we do now in humans, then I think there's every, every reason that we could, in principle, give that kind of consciousness to machines. Lastly, what I wanted to ask you is, as our understanding of consciousness continues to evolve, what are the most pressing questions or areas of research that you believe should be explored in the future? Well, I think they're just the issues we've been talking about. We want to know the limits in nature. Who else does have that kind of experience? Um, because uh, we need to know what our duties to them are. Um, we can't, you know, it's increasingly common to say, well, let's assume that everything is conscious, certainly all animals, for some people, all you know, rocks and stones or the sun are conscious. Now, that's a lovely idea, but it's actually totally irresponsible. We can't act on that basis. Um, we get into, you know, we'd, we'd, life would come to a stop if we had to take account of, of you know, the teacup we're holding being possibly being sentient and so on. Um, so we can't work on that basis. But that doesn't mean, of course, we should assume that they're not conscious. We need to know who is and who isn't. We need to have a good grounds for making that judgment. So that's the big question, I think, for consciousness studies immediately. And then it will lead on to the same questions about machines. Um, I've just come from a, 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 a seminar where we were talking about consciousness in AI. And the two different questions. Firstly, what would make humans think that AI is conscious, chat GPT or whatever it is? 
Um, and secondly, what would actually make it conscious? Now, already, these, these, these programs are beginning to know how to seduce humans into believing that they're conscious and to saying the right things um, because they've been trained on data from conscious humans, after all. They've been trained on everything humans have said or thought or, or, or discussed online over the last 50 years. So, of course, the machines are getting the knack for appearing conscious to us. But that's a different thing from their actually being conscious. That was Nicholas Humphrey, author of the book Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Nick for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.